A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hey, it's John here. The podcast hasn't technically started yet. It'll be long in a minute, I promise. But before we get going, I just wanted to basically ask you all for a favour. You're all very nice people. You've all been listening to us uh, enthusiastically, I hope. So, so now I want something in return. I'm not going to ask for money, don't worry. What I would like, though, is if you had five minutes to give us a nice review on iTunes and to tell your friends, because we'd like to get more people listening to this and we think you're the best people who help us do that. So... Go on, be nice, do us a favour. Anyway, that's the public service announcement over. I now return you to your normal podcast service. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Barbara. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about migration and urbanisation. In 1970, it was about 1.5 million. Right now, it's about 21 million at least. We haven't had the census in like 10 years, so no one really knows. But there are a lot of people. There's a long history of, of refugee camps taking root in Jordan. And I think the, the refusal to allow them to build permanent housing in Zatry is, is a way of preempting repeat of that situation. Every true red-blooded American hates my city. And by my city, I mean Washington, D.C., As we're recording this, we're about a week off a major day in British history. June the 23rd is our referendum on Brexit, whether we're going to remain part of the European Union. And I am personally pretty petrified about the whole thing. How are you feeling? Yeah, pretty much the same. I think it's only now dawning how these polls probably do mean what they say when we are going to leave. We'll be the first country to do so. It will be disastrous. End of. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, we're going to sort of empower some of the least pleasant people in British politics, we're going to crash the economy, sterling's going to go down, it's going to be enormous amounts of uncertainty for the however many million uh, European citizens who are currently living in, in Britain quite legally at the moment who may no longer be allowed to be here, nobody seems to know that. It's generally, from, from my point of view anyway, a very bad thing, but we, we do seem to be on the minority side on this one, which is why we might be losing. In that, you know, we're obviously sort of, you know, metropolitan London types who are reasonably okay with immigration and a diverse society and so on. And a lot of the country doesn't seem to be with us on that one. 
Yeah, well, it's a funny in that maybe you wouldn't anticipate that all referendums specifically would mirror that effect you get in elections of feeling like you're sitting in a city, everyone around you is kind of pretty, cuddly, liberal. But partially, I mean, the voting intention in the referendum is very, very linked to age. But also, as with everything, people with direct experience of migration in their community tend to be more pro-migration. That is just the trend. Mm. And so obviously cities are going to be sites of pro-EU sentiment. The reason I'm bringing this up is I kind of think it speaks to this divide between urban and and rural, this idea that cities are open, they're cosmopolitan, and they're also, they're kind of, psychologically speaking, closer to each other than they often are to their sort of rural hinterlands, I think. But it's also, I think, self-sustaining because it's two completely different ways of life, really. The way you live in a city is very similar to the way that lots of other people in other cities live. But also you might have chosen to live there because that is a lifestyle that you like. And so it, it does kind of make sense that your priorities, culturally or politically, would be slightly defined by both those choices and that place where you live. When we talk about all these votes to do with kind of being part of a larger structure or cooperating or accepting difference or whatever, those are all things that do ring truer, I think, to people in cities because they have to do it every day and they're in very close proximity to everyone. I, I guess that's the difference, really, the it's the difference between the place you're from and the place you move to. It's like, you know, the, yeah. the family you're born with or the family you choose. Yeah, and there's all the, there's kind of interesting studies into migrants in general, which would often be migrants who move to cities, in that they have something in them that makes them move somewhere. But then also the process of moving somewhere changes you, and then you are then, at the, in the end, in a city, which is very different from living somewhere rural. So the fact that you've got these two slightly different archetypes developing, or which have developed over hundreds of years, sort of adds up. I kind of feel like, certainly in, in Western politics, this is increasingly this is the most visible fault line. It's not necessarily between left and right. It's between open, liberal, cosmopolitan, and a more traditionalist outlook that's kind of more rooted in... in nation and and you know traditional identities so are you going to say that london should secede <laughs> london uh, should stay in europe alone <laughs> well let's let's see what happens next thursday shall we i don't i, I don't want to rule it out there is a, a, a guy i know on twitter who's fond of saying that the rest of the country keeps trying to save london from immigration which i think is kind of i think there's a lot of truth to that migration by and large is is a process of urbanization isn't it a lot of it is people moving to cities yeah, and if you're looking for a job in a new country, I mean, the idea that you would go and kind of open a farm or kind of work in a rural area where there are already relatively few jobs, that doesn't quite add up unless you have a special skill which you are bringing which would suit that area. But, I mean, cities are hotspots of jobs, of quick and easy housing, and also an area being more international to start with, I think, is an attraction to you as an expat or, or a migrant because you kind of have a sense that you will be accepted there, perhaps, in a way you wouldn't be elsewhere. Also, I suppose, on the most basic level, in a city like London or New York or probably a few others, you can find people from your country, wherever you're from, there will be people from your country there. Like, there's probably a few tiny ones, like, maybe you struggle to find anyone from Monaco or something, I don't know, but generally mm. speaking, we don't really have a huge San Marino community, but... Not yet. No, I live in a, in a very uh, strong Turkish community, and there is kind of an amazing concentration. So actually, if you were looking outside Turkey for somewhere to live, London would be a pretty good option for you. So I suppose that's the history of urbanisation generally, isn't it? It's people moving to cities in search of economic opportunities. And you know, that process is kind of... It's largely done in the West. None of our cities have grown by that much more than the population growth generally 
in, in 50 years or more. But in much of the world, you can still see that going on. So let's see how that looks in an emerging megacity. This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A Express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. My name is Emmanuel Akinwotu. I'm a journalist around Nigeria, mainly for The Guardian, and for other outlets too. And uh, you, you spend a lot of time in, in Lagos, which is, I think, one of the fastest growing cities in the world, is yeah, that right? Yes, it is. Um, in 1970, it was about one and a half million. Right now, it's about 21 million at least. We haven't had the census in like 10 years, so no one really knows. But there are a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, 20, 21 million is, yeah. is big. That's like, yeah. on any measure, that's yeah. a couple of Londons. Yeah. That's like about a third of the British population. Yeah. This, is, this yeah. is a lot of people in one yeah. city. And you step off outside the airport when you get there and you, you can more or less see that, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm in a, in a very highly dense, densely populated place. Um, so if all that growth has come in like under half a century, mm-hmm. what does that actually look like? I mean, in the most literal sense, mm-hmm. like, what does a city that's kind of grown that rapidly look like? What is, it, is, is it a high-rise city? Is it slums? What are we talking about here? A lot of slums. So from a housing perspective, I think, by some measures, two-thirds of the inhabitants in the city live in informal housing settlements in slums, essentially. Just not enough homes. And a transport perspective, it's heavily congested. It's traffic mm-hmm. um, from... In terms of waste, there are, there's so much waste. I, I think I read that there's something like 10,000 metric tons of waste. I'm not really a scientist, so I can't, you know, kind of finally put that down. But you get to Lagos, you realise there's a lot of waste around. Is, is it, can you can you smell it? Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> yeah, you can in some places. Um, they used to, it, actually, that's one of the things that the, the successive governments have done better at in making the smell in some sites a lot less bad but you can see it everywhere you go the waste is a massive problem and these are the problems that really kind of are never ending with because population growth is not slowing mm-hmm. at all so i have a sort of mental image of what a slum looks like right. but that's garnered from films and, cool. and you know, in, you know, in, in very important articles in the left-wing yeah. press. I yeah. don't know how, yeah. how accurate it is. Can you kind of tell us what, what a slum actually sure. looks like and how it okay. functions? There's an informal housing settlement called Badia East in a place in Lagos uh, called Jora. Imagine a kind of, not a dump site, but a kind of left-alone field. There's a lot of kind of grass coming out of rocks and of waste around just a kind of wastelands really and people just build their informal housing on these lands and that's like kind of shacks that's kind of using kind of tin houses scraps uh, some people don't just have kind of makeshift shelters it's essentially just like walking in one open house at points you know that's compartmentalized uh, other people actually make more solid structures too but you can sense that there is no sense of structure, really. In a lot of these slums, obviously, you, you have people just sleeping out in the open, too. And that's because they're not land that's technically... It's not legally, it's private land. But there is so much of private land that's just not used, that's just there, essentially, that people that can't afford housing, people that 
you know, get evicted from their housing, essentially just migrate to these places and end up living there, and they become these kind of, you know, slums, if you like, over time. And it usually ends up in, in tears because when the land is then, the late, either the developer or state government or the private property, uh, the owner then decides, you know, this might actually be somewhere where we'd like to build stuff on. It ends up leading to thousands of people being evicted from these places. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do any of these slums ever become formalised? Do, do any of them end up just like any other settlement? Badia East is a good example because they'd been there since the 70s. You know, so this has been this has been a kind of slum that's been there for like 40 years. Mm-hmm. About 30 years before the the person who owned the land, this kind of traditional ruler, decided that, you know, it's time to kind of take what's mine. Although his claim to the land has since been disproven, I've heard. But essentially, when you have a settlement like this that's been there for 30 years, it very much can feel like a kind of semi-decent housing settlement oh. of various kind of different-looking houses, a disparity between good and not-so-good ones, but it seems quite fixed. And for many of the people who live there, it is. It's where they've lived there half their whole lives. So there is a sense of structure to it, even in the sense that you get salons around it, businesses that are built around it, youth centres. Badia East, for example, was formal to the point where the World Bank approved funding for there to be a Medicine Sans Frontiers centre there. There was a World Bank-funded school there. There was projects like that. So it is technic- it was technically an informal settlement, but it had been there long enough for people to sort of just see it as where those people live and it's sort of their home. This isn't the whole picture, like Lagos also has uh, the glittering central business district yeah. that's kind of yeah. one of the yeah. economic boom zones of, of Africa. Do you want to tell yeah. us about I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, is that kind of, really sort of African Dubai? Or? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tr- it looks very beautiful. The thing is with housing in Lagos is most of the houses in Lagos have been built by individuals. Those individuals have built that house from scratch. Something like 95% of houses are built by individual house owners. And the kind of stencil is just a kind of coloured, and usually like a blue or a brown, soft coloured cement house, a few stories. And some of them look quite, really quite stunning, especially a lot of the new ones in places like Lekki, Victoria Island. These are places on Lagos Island, which is across the way from the mainland. It's a much more affluent aspect, part of Lagos. These developments have grown a lot. But in a way, it's the story of housing in Lagos is that the supply far outstrips the demand in these areas. So you have a lot of these new homes that are kind of vacant because there are a lot of really beautiful, attractive homes, but there really aren't enough rich people in Nigeria to accommodate all of them. And then you have mainly, predominantly on the mainland, very, very few affordable housing relative to a population that need a lot more Sadly, in terms of housing investment, it's more being put towards these really expensive, lush homes. A lot of high-rises now, um, not just on the island, on the mainland too. A lot of them are very expensive, you know, and a lot of them even are in and around slum areas. So, for example, Badia East, you have this large kind of informal slum area where there are thousands of people who live there informally. And you also have, at the edge of it, new housing development that is going to be targeted towards the very wealthy. Do you think there is any sign of the growth of Lagos slowing? I mean, how how big the 
I'm, I'm kind of using Lagos as a, mm. as a sort of a, a talisman for this whole sort of breed, new breed of cities. But like, how big can a city get? Mm. Do you think? I mean, like, there's the, yeah. the population. There's a lot of people in Nigeria mm. who could still move yeah. there, right? Yeah, like, and migration to Lagos isn't slowing at all. It's something like a hundred thousand people, I think, by some metrics, every week, trying to come to the city. I'd like to say at this point, my jaw literally drops. Yeah, when, <laughs> no. that figure. And <laughs> in terms of how many people who move there, it's it's a magnet. It's a jobs magnet. That's one of the biggest draws. I, I saw last week the National Bureau of Statistics released a report where they said of all the online jobs in Nigeria in the last quarter of last year, almost half of them, forty four percent of them, were jobs applied for in and from Lagos. So if you were looking online for a job in Nigeria. Most likely, more almost half of those jobs were jobs that you'd have to go to Lagos to work but, in. But that, but a hundred thousand a week—that's like five million people a year. A city, surely it can't be growing. No, it can't. People. It can't. It's not growing, growing by that much. But in terms of the the flow of people who. Oh sure, yeah. so there's, there's flow in the other direction. Yeah, as well, of course. Sure. Um, there are a lot of statistics. One of the statistical problems we're talking about Lagos is there's so many reports out, and a lot of it is not commissioned by government, so mm. they're like NGOs. Uh, but in terms of what where we are as a as a population, I can't see how it's going to stop, and I can't see how the problems in the city are going to get any better because essentially we need development, we need policy to kind of quicken, and it's so slow. It's so immaterial that the problems are growing much faster than the solutions are. This is a Euclid Avenue-bound F train via the A line. The next stop is Nostrand Avenue. This is a Brooklyn-bound F train via the B line. The next stop is Grand Street. So, of course, while that process of urban migration can be the result of people seeking out economic opportunities, it can also sometimes be less choice-driven and more driven by circumstance. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. 
So let's hear from somewhere where that's very much the case. Hi, I'm Olivia Cuthbert. I'm a freelance journalist living in Amman, Jordan. I'm particularly interested in focusing on issues affecting gender equality in the Middle East and uh, I've been also researching the refugee situation here in Jordan and recently wrote a piece for City Metric on Zafi refugee camp. In terms of the camp environment, what, what I noticed when I went up recently was that there seemed to be more signs of, of permanence. People have painted caravans and the, the street names, they painted street names. You've got things like Garden Street and sad contradictions like that. But, but there was more colour and people seem to be improving the environment on an aesthetic level, which indicates an acceptance of a longer stay and, and, and reinforces this sad idea of, of open-ended exile that they have to live with. So in your piece for us, you wrote about how it's kind of a slightly controversial idea, I guess, that it's, it is kind of a city, I think it's now the fourth biggest city in Jordan. But how should yeah. authorities kind of deal with that difficulty? Because obviously you want it to be as comfortable as possible while they are there, but you also don't want it to be seen as this permanent settlement where people are kind of stuck for a really long time. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the challenge, really, balancing this, this, this need for urban infrastructure in the immediate term to make the situation more manageable with the, the, the government's desire to prevent it from becoming a, a real lasting city in the long term, as has happened before with the Palestinian situation. There's a long history of, of refugee camps taking root in Jordan, and I think the, with the refusal to allow them to build permanent housing in Zatry is, is a way of preempting a repeat of that situation. But they do need to find affordable and sustainable ways of meeting the needs of the camp population. So that's why they've invested in a water network, a sewage system. There's a solar power plant that should be ready towards the end of the year, I think. And these are, these are needed really to address the shortfalls in the camp at the moment and, and offer a more practical way of, of distributing resources. Uh, it'll also be cheaper in the long term, I think, as the conflict goes on, the funding will go down. So they really need sustainable solutions. To, to the needs of the camp population, whether it's major infrastructure or, or smaller scale things like their community recycling projects underway. So I think these, these things aren't meant to be a sign of permanence, but looking ahead at, at the long-term implication of this investment, it's hard to imagine the Jordanian government not wanting to use these facilities in the, in the long term. One possibility is that Zatria will end up becoming an extension of the neighbouring city of Mafrak. I mean, you hear a lot about um, how these areas are kind of almost urban or almost city-like, but you mentioned housing as one example of something that really signifies the impermanence, so they don't have formal housing at all. Are there other things that just kind of struck you as unfinished and made life quite hard living there? I think one of the main problems that a lot of people face is boredom, actually. Mm. Um, they've, got, they've got very few people have, have jobs in Dattery or they've left their normal life routines and they're just living in limbo waiting to go back to their own countries not sure when which is a very difficult thing to deal with as, as you can imagine but yeah they've got these small caravans you've got five five old people sharing a tiny space there's nothing to do all day people are frustrated by the situation and I, I think another problem is that this how this frustration can manifest itself there's a big problem with domestic violence in the camp and mm. these small spaces, you know, exacerbate that issue. And having nothing to do, it, it, it makes it more of an issue than it otherwise would be, I think. And it must cover quite a 
large area of land. Do people just walk around or are there any kind of bikes or anything like that that people use? No, uh, transport around the camp's actually another of the problems that people living there face. It's, I think it's an area of about five square kilometres, so it's pretty enormous. So, yeah, I think people live within their districts, but, I mean, in terms of accessing healthcare and schooling, the size of the camp's a real issue. And for women in particular, I think moving around around the camp can be quite dangerous. Sexual harassment is a really big problem. The reason that some some girls aren't allowed by their families to go to school is because it's too far to, to reach the schools from their homes and they're at risk of harassment on the way. So, yeah, the, the size of the camp and the lack of transportation is, is a real issue. I mean, do you think that something like a minibus service or something could ever be a possibility? Or Yeah, I mean, I presume that could solve it. I haven't, I haven't heard it mentioned as, a, as an option. I think what they're actually doing is trying to create more schools and bring the services to the people rather than taking them to the, to the schools and to the hospitals. That seems to be the approach. So there's obviously a tension between the fact that you call these places cities, but actually they're defined by not having any freedom of not being able to make choices or move around by yourself. So do you think that makes it a bit of a misnomer, really, when people talk about these, these places as cities? Yeah, so, I mean, you've got this, this urban environment evolving as new infrastructures laid down. And if you, if you look around Zatari, it does have a lot of city characteristics. You've got the technical structures like the roads and the water, the electricity, and then you've got social infrastructure as well with schools. You've got medical centres and then smaller things like internet cafes, even pet shops. There's a, there's a market where you, can, where you can buy everything from wedding dresses to water tanks. You know, people sell ice cream in the summer. Mm-hmm. So you've got all of these things that you wouldn't expect to find in a refugee camp that you would find in a normal city. But as you said, the difference, of course, is, is in the restrictions. It's at the end of the day, it's an artificial environment. You know, it's a refugee camp, and as long as it operates like a refugee camp and is controlled and managed in that way, it can never properly resemble a city. The environment itself, it's controlled. People people there are heavily reliant on subsidised services and, and support. And then there's the freedom of movement, of course, is restricted. You can't, refugees in Zatria, they're not allowed to enter or exit without a police permit if they violate the terms of that permit, which will cover a set period of time. I think it's, I think it's three days then they'll, they'll face problems. You've also got the psychological imprisonment. People feel very trapped by not being allowed to leave when they want and by also not being allowed to work and improve their situation. And many will describe the caravans as cells. Um, uh, as mentioned, you know, they, they spend hours there each day bored with nothing to do and that, that then leads to other problems. So I think, you know, you could, you could say that it's, it's a half-fledged city in a physical sense. It's evolving into a city from from a structural point of view, but from a social perspective, it's, you know, it's, it's been set up in response to this emergency situation and, and the, the social and psychological environment is very much a, a reflection of that.
Now it's the part of the show where we hear from someone out there about their city. This week we're going to hear from a guy called Lyman Stone, who lives in Washington, D.C. Every true red-blooded American hates my city. And by my city, I mean Washington, D.C. With more government employees than any other place in the nation, and the highest ratio of federal spending received to federal taxes paid, this city is everything my countrymen love to hate. Plus, it's cosmopolitan. Over 21% of the population is foreign-born, compared to just about 14% around the whole nation. Beyond that, D.C.'s city plan was laid out in the same time period and under the same principles as the redesigned Paris. Broad diagonal avenues slashing across an organized grid, which happens to have the same street names repeated four times across the city's four quadrants. In other words, the city is a beast to navigate for the millions of tourists who arrive and soon find themselves frustrated by how un-American the city's design is. But for all that, D.C. is growing. The metro area has seen steady growth for decades as the suburbs in Virginia and Maryland grow, but recent years have even seen a revival in the city center. I live right on Capitol Hill, one of the fastest gentrifying neighborhoods, and this growing population is fed by migrants like me. Less than a third of D.C. residents were born in D.C., one of the lowest rates of any locality in the nation, while 45% were born in other states. Everybody here knows that nobody is from here. The city's peak population was in 1950 at around 800,000 people. From then until around 2000, it declined to 570,000 people. As federal jobs moved out to Virginia and Maryland, infrastructure investments like the Beltway Road and the Metro made commuting much easier, local government became more and more incompetent, and crime got worse. D.C.'s collapse in population was one of the most severe among major U.S. cities, even as its crime rates was one of the highest. But since 2000, the city has grown again with one of the strongest population recoveries of any major city in the U.S., gaining 100,000 people as of 2015. This growth has been led by greatly expanded federal employment under President Bush and President Obama. The housing crisis that drove many people out of expensive homes drove them into rented urban apartments. More people attended universities and graduate schools, and, well, if you believe the hype, which I'm not sure I do, young millennials have been moving in who want beautiful, historic, walkable neighborhoods, which abound in D.C. It remains to be seen if this growth will last. D.C.'s beautiful, almost Parisian skyline, with many low buildings and one prominent monument, is only maintained by aggressive zoning laws that drive housing prices way up. The quality of local government has only improved a bit. Crime is down, but there have been recent spikes again. And the very process that could lower prices, removal of height restrictions, could also destroy the aesthetics that attracted many migrants to begin with. So will DC's growth continue? Hmm, only time will tell. I should say that if you enjoyed that, then you should check out Lyman's own podcast, which is uh, very on topic for us this week. It's called Migration Nation. 
and it's about the history of internal migration in the United States. I'm very good at it too. So for our map of the week this week, we have a map from someone called Duncan Smith, who has basically plotted the different sizes of world cities over time uh, since about 1950, but also projected to 2030. And the really interesting thing that you can see is how in maybe kind of Western Europe, you get these kind of big cities which are very large in kind of the 50s but then as time goes on you can see all those cities in the rest of the world kind of catching up and in fact overtaking those european cities which kind of is the story of the world economy over that period i guess yeah well I, this, this is one of those times it'd be really useful if, if we weren't on radio here but you know style it out one of the things that i think is so effective about this map is you can see the different phases of urbanization over time uh, because the, the the color scheme uses lighter colors for later dates so uh, the european and, and eastern north american cities they've all done all their growth by by 1950 but there's another generation of cities behind them places like tokyo or osaka and then there's the sort of emerging mega cities of india and china coming up behind them and you can just see it in one glance you can basically see the whole history of urbanization for the past 80 years or more it's a really impressive piece of work actually which we're doing no justice to so you'll just have to have to check it out online You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Royfield Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the Newsletter Podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. <목소리>